stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Continuing forward in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 13, and we have uh, quite a bit of uh, Scripture before us today that we're going to work our way through. Verses 13 through 41, the sermon title is, Through, the, through This Man is Preached to You the Forgiveness of Sins. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Acts 13, verses 13 through 41. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to, to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified 
from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So here we are, continuing together on life's journey, and it feels long and hard sometimes, doesn't it? Do you ever sink into your own difficulties, even the little ones, even you little ones? Do you ever sink into your own difficulties, give way to discouragement, holding on to it, becoming what we call a grump monster at our house? Does that happen to you? Forgetting God's blessings? It gets worse. Forgetting God's blessings, becoming ungrateful, not giving thanks for what you have, and even coming to secretly believe. Does this happen to you? That the Lord's plan is just for you to suffer. Everybody else gets the blessings, but you, you're just here to suffer. Maybe you'll get a little glimpse of goodness before you die, but maybe not. Do you ever give way? to this kind of sin. You know, about 3,500 years ago, the wandering people of God fell into this sin. And how did God help them? What did he do to help them? Let's listen to it again. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now, of course, we can think in our minds all the things that God has done for them and is doing for them on this very day, as you'll see. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Manna. Miraculous. Day by day. So the Lord, how did he deal with them? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. He afflicted them. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So they repented. The affliction brought, God used to bring repentance. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And we've all been bitten by sin, haven't we? So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So When we are afflicted with our own sin and with God's fatherly discipline in our lives, how will we respond? How will you respond? The word of salvation comes to you, to your mind, to your heart today. How will you respond? Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Will we look to Jesus and live? Going on with the words of Christ, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So instead of giving way to unbelief in any way, let us all look to Jesus today through this text that we're going to study. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, our Savior. Looking to Him. And be healed. Be healed. Believing more and more upon Him, growing in faith. Laying aside discouragement. Laying aside ungratefulness. Laying aside the sins that are associated with this. And embracing, brothers and sisters, God's love and forgiveness rejoicing together in the glad tidings. That's what we're going to do today, by by God's grace. May it be so. So we're going to go through this entire text. Uh, We're going to focus on Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the justification that is ours in Him. And we're going to seek to rejoice by His grace in the gospel today. So we're going to see them go from Cyprus to southern Galatia, We're going to see them welcomed at Pisidian Antioch, which is the first city they visit in southern Galatia. We're going to see Paul taking the lead. Uh, We're going to see how Paul is emerging as a leader. He stands and he preaches to the Jews and to the God-fearers, that synagogue group. And then he goes through the epic history of the people of Israel, starting with the patriarchs, going to Joshua, then from Judges to Saul, then into King David, skipping over the remainder of history right to David's seed, Jesus, who was proclaimed by John the Baptist, who was not the Messiah, who was not even worthy, he said, to unloose his sandal. And we'll see Paul personalizes the message in verse 26, but we'll see he's doing this over and over again, and we want to join in with that, each one of us, that the message today would be personalized for each and every one of us. He goes on to tell them how this happened, that the Jews... And the Romans murdered Jesus, treating him terribly, crucifying him. But God raised him from the dead, Paul tells them. And he goes through that and gives the witnesses testimony. And then glad tidings of scripture, that's what he calls it. And he shows them how this is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So not only does he go through the epic history, but then when he gets to the point of proclaiming who Christ is, what has happened to him, who he is in history, he then goes back and points at Old Testament scripture again to show how these glad tidings were foretold. And then we see that forgiveness and justification are through Jesus alone. May God bless us to rejoice in this great truth and to hear the words of warning. Because this text ends with warning against unbelief. And you know the warnings are for all of us, not just for those outside of Christ. These can profit the warnings of Scripture, can profit all of us. So may we profit from those warnings. And then some questions and considerations to kind of go through the main themes again. That we may be, that we may be by God's grace, recipients of this truth in our minds, in our hearts today, united with true faith. United with true faith from heaven that this word would bear fruit in our lives. That you wouldn't just hear this in your mind, but that God would grant you to hear this with your heart and to believe, and to be transformed more as a result. So from Cyprus to southern Galatia, 
can see the map there in your notes. It shows you there, doesn't it, how Pamphylia is a Roman region that borders Cilicia, which contains Tarsus. Do you, do you see that? And then Galatia uh, stretches up to the north. You can't see that in the map, but you see here southern Galatia. Also take note there that uh, Tarsus and Cilicia has some degree of geographic proximity to Derby, the last city they visited there in southern Galatia, which may have impacted the choice to go where they went, starting in Cyprus with Barnabas' home and then working their way into southern Galatia near Paul's, uh, near Paul's region. Hear the text again. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So Luke brings us into this journey again. Note, it says, Paul and his party. Here's another indication that Paul has taken up the leadership role in the mission at this point in time. It's, it seems to be that Barnabas has transitioned out of leadership and Paul has come into leadership at this point in time. Note that they set sail from Paphos. Now, they had great gospel success there in Cyprus, but these men had a clear vision from God of where they were called, and it was time to go. So they didn't stick around and engage in longer discipleship at Cyprus. They did not do that. That needed to be left for others. Their mission is evangelism to a specific region. Now, we'll see during uh, the future efforts, they do come back to churches and strengthen them. And we'll see in Acts 15 when Barnabas and Paul had their sharp disagreement over John Mark. Where did Barnabas and John Mark go? Back to Cyprus. So Barnabas had that history of encouraging the churches. That's, we assume, speculate wisely, that's where they went. They came back to disciple. But that's not the point of this journey. So they leave. Their mission is evangelism to a specific region, so they go to continue God's will. Then they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So let's pause and remember their journey. This is another sailing leg in their travels. Now, if I'd studied this more fully, I could probably give you some indication of what time of year it was and what the weather may have been like, and I don't remember. Uh, I don't, I've looked at it, but I can't recall. But either way, it was a sailing moment. And those of you who sail know that you don't really ever know for sure what you're going to get when you go out there. You may have a little breeze, and then you just sit there in the doldrums, Right? Or, or you may say, oh, there's not much wind and just get blown over. Uh, you just don't know for sure what's going to happen. So they didn't know. They're about to sail. You can see how far they're going to sail across the Mediterranean there. And that was uh, jeopardy. Did, how did they go? What was the boat like? What were the facilities like on the boat? Just the whole thing. So we can see that this is a tough time for them. And recall that John Mark is going through this. Recall what John Mark went through traveling across all of Cyprus, walking or on a donkey or something across the entire island of Cyprus, which I discovered since the last sermon was not well controlled by the Romans. Not even the Romans liked to go to that part of Cyprus where there were bandits and not good roads, and it was a tough time. John Mark is kind of a wealthy family guy, probably didn't know what he was getting into. So it's worth noting that as we're going through this because that's going to be another theme, another lesson learned as we go through Acts is John Mark and his life. So as I'm going to do as we go through this, I want us to also pull back and consider this piece of dirt today. What has happened since then? Where are we today? So this is from Operation World about Turkey. 
Is Turkey a Christian nation? Did, did southern Galatia sprout and see to churches built all over Turkey that survived the invasion of uh, godless pagans? No. Turkey is not a Christian place. The devastating impact of the earthquakes. Now this is an update recently to what's going on in Turkey. The devastating impact of the earthquakes in February of 2023 shocked the world. Around 50,000 people, but possibly more, died. Now, those of you who keep up with the news, you, you probably call hearing about this. But it was in the news and then out of the news. It's not in the news and out of the news there. This, especially in the rural areas, this place has been devastated. That the earthquakes occurred in winter increased the suffering of survivors. Literally million, millions of buildings were destroyed or damaged and hundreds of thousands of people left homeless. Much of the destruction occurred in remote areas. Getting assistance to these communities is now all the more difficult. Many of the buildings failed to meet up to safety standards due to corruption that allowed builders to bribe officials and skirt requirements. Rebuilding both the physical infrastructure and faith in corrupted political leadership will take years or decades. The trauma of loss will stay with many for their whole lives. Pray that God may use, and see this is what we can do. A part of what we can do as we're going through Acts is we can upgrade our prayer life for the world. Pray that God might use this tragedy to bring breakthrough to areas long, resistance to the good, long resistant to the good news. Pray that Christians might pour into the area with aid, assistance, compassion, and mercy as they love and serve the people of this region in genuine partnership with and service to the local body of Christ. Pray that such humble and generous Christian service and witness might be present for the long haul of restoration and that many hearts would respond to these demonstrations of Christ's love. That's from Operation World. Now, did you know there's about 86 million people in, uh, in Turkey? So it's a pretty big nation. And 0.2% Christian. 0% evangelical. 52% unevangelized. So I'll be listening during our prayer time today. And if nobody prays for Turkey, then I will. But feel free to lift up the nation of Turkey and cry out to God for them. Moving on. The text says, And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. We're going to look at this in greater detail in the future, probably have an entire sermon devoted to this lesson. Briefly, though, John Mark sinned by abandoning his post, not keeping his word to Barnabas and Paul. And we'll see this more clearly in Acts 15, 38, when we dig into the meaning of the word there for departed, which is a different word than is used today in Acts 13. Acts 13, today's word just means to go somewhere else. But that is not what it means here in Acts 15, 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So that word departed has to do with abandonment and even suggests apostasy in some scriptures. So he was a major failure in his part. Paul and Barnabas really disagree about whether to give him a second chance. Okay? And Paul just didn't want to have someone there that was going to let him down again. He was like, no, we're not going to do this. And we'll look at that more in the future. The end of the story is that he was restored. Okay? We see in evidences of that. So that's good news. Cross-cultural, listen, you might think about this in the future. Hey, I'd like to go on a mission trip. Cross-cultural foreign missions is very, very difficult work. Especially then, but also now. And there's this implied, very important principle, be tested. Be tested before you go. Be tested before you go. 
Okay, and good missions agencies understand this. You don't just send people out who want to go. They have to be tested. Because it is crushing when folks abandon their post on the mission field. It, it really can undo the work. All right, going on. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. Now, somehow they knew they were supposed to go there and that they were just passing through that, that port town. And they came to Perga just to get off the boat. They had their sights set on southern Galatia. And I'm going to keep saying southern Galatia because <clears throat> to whom was the book of Galatians written? <clears throat> There's two theories. And, and I think the southern Galatian theory is the, most, is the most likely one to be true. And that serves as an important dating aspect to the entire New Testament and to understanding what's happening at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Now, we'd mention, I mentioned already Paul's upbringing in Tarsus there in southern Cilicia and the possibility of geographic proximity influencing his decision to go to this area. The book of Galatians, we're going to look at it as we go through the next few sections of the book of Acts because it shines the light of much more understanding on what's going on in this conflict with the Judaizers. And most likely, Paul is writing the book of Galatians to these churches, these churches that we're going to be seeing in these cities, in Pisidian Antioch, and Lystra, and Derby and Iconium. These are the churches of southern Galatia, and I think it's very likely that that's to whom Galatians was written. The Judaizers had come there, had tried to ruin the message, the same thing that Peter already bumped into that we've already talked about in the book of Acts. But it keeps popping up. So we're going to see the Lord use a church-wide council put that major heresy to rest that could have torn the church apart in its infancy. They went straight to the synagogue and sat down. So note, these men understand their calling. And when men understand their calling, they just go do it. They didn't get distracted. They went to the synagogue and they sat down. And they went there to bring the message of the gospel to the Jews. That's why they went there. And it's it's that principle that we see over and over that the gospel is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Even though they're called to the Gentiles, they went to the Jews first. You see this over and over again happening. Wherever there's a synagogue, wherever there are Jews present, they go and find them. And they preach to them first. And from there, the springboard serves to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So the Lord's been preparing because they're welcomed there at Pisidian Antioch in that synagogue. They're not run off. They're welcome. So the news of what had happened before, of the Jews trying to run him off, trying to kill him in other cities, apparently had not influenced this or uh, this location, or maybe they didn't care when they heard about it. So maybe the law and the prophets read on this day set the stage for some of the details of Paul's sermon that we're going to look at, because they just heard the word of God. Now Paul, of course, knew the gospel and knew what he was going to preach, but he also knows his message and the setting and why wouldn't he bring the gospel into the law and the prophets that was read that very day? It's a really good thing to note that the rulers of the synagogue agreed to this. And they, it appears as though they initiate. They see them and they say, come, give us a word of exhortation. Now this is interesting, this word exhortation is the same word that's used in Barnabas' name, son of encouragement. Okay, that word there is encouragement. So they said, come, give us some word of consolation, some word of solace. Some get, come, give us a word of refreshment. And boy, did they ever get it. <laughs> it 
they got the word of refreshment that day. And so it's, it also can mean a persuasive discourse, and I think they got that as well on this day. So, so Paul said, okay, I'll give you a word of encouragement. I'll give you a word of consolation. I'll give you a word of exhortation. I'll give you a word that will pers- be persuasive. And we'll see later uh, in the future sermons it was persuasive. God blessed it. So we see a lot of providence here. We see these rulers at this time being prepared, ready to give the thumbs up and say, bring the word. And think about the generations of synagogue practices, the people coming, people coming week by week, week by week. And there's this week, you know, could you imagine missing church that Sunday, Saturday? Uh, I think I'm feeling kind of bad. I'm kind of tired. I'm going to stay home. They missed it, didn't they? (laughs) So there's all this going on. And the ministers of the gospel are there to bring this fantastic news to them. All right, so Paul stands up and preaches. It says, he stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul's taking the lead. And we can praise Barnabas here too because he doesn't push himself forward but watches Paul rise to be the encourager. This may be another reason John Mark said, I've had enough. You know, Paul's this pushy guy trying to take over. You know, things are seen different by complainers. And, uh, and you know, he wanted Barnabas to be the lead. Who knows? <clears throat> but that could be another reason why John Mark left. Paul personalizes the gospel to this group. Men of Israel and you who fear God, right? So that's something that every preacher, every evangelist should try to do, is to personalize the message. As I'm preaching today, my goal is to connect with every heart and mind in this room with the Word of God so that you hear it, you think about it, you ponder it, you deeply consider it, and you seek faith from God to believe it and live it out. Because he says, listen. That's what I'm doing right now. All this thing I'm doing. He's, he's trying to connect with them. And this is what we do in relationships with one another. We, we seek to connect with one another as fellow human beings and that that bridge will be the spot where the, the messages are given back and forth to one another. So they're drawing together The preacher is with them. He says, listen, right? That's an interaction. And they're drawing together around the message of Christ together. That's what this moment should be like always, whenever preaching is taking place, whenever you're sharing the word with someone, drawing together, coming together, drawing one another together around the word. So the sermon that he goes on to preach includes a recounting of providential history, this epic story of what God has done. And you don't don't have to say a lot. You see, I mean, there's a lot that could be said, but he summarizes it pretty quickly leading up to Christ as the seed of David. So it summarizes Jewish history, leading up to David, and then from there to Christ as the seed of David. And he brings in John the Baptist, preceded right before Christ, bringing Christ in, they overlap. Always focusing, though, and here's the thing, the focus of this sermon from Paul and every sermon, the work of God. The work of God. That's what we're going to see over and over again. So he goes through the work of God in their history and he just keeps talking about the work of God to fulfill all of his promises in Christ and in them. The work of God. God. And then he goes on to tell of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And you will see there that he talks about the works of wickedness. The works of unbelief. And so we see this contrast in all good preaching between the works of God and the works of unbelief. The works of faith and the works of unbelief. He goes on to tell them of Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection as the only source of forgiveness of sins and justification before God. He emphasizes Old Testament prophecy, fulfilled, and he finishes with a warning. So let's dive in. 
From the patriarchs to Joshua, here's what he says. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now, in order to summarize a piece of history, like the way he did, probably off the top of his head, you really have to know the history, right? To be able to speak like this and summarize things, you really kind of have to know the details. And yes, for some in the audience, that does, some in the congregation, that does mean knowing dates. Because you'll, you'll see he, he does times frames and, and this many years, right? So kids, hey, when you're learning your history, there's a message here. There's a message here. You want to be able to give a summary of history like Paul did. So those dates matter. They're important. Paul knew his dates. He begins with the beginning of the people of Israel, pointing back to the patriarchs. He says, chose our fathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does he do? He points to the work of God. What did God do? God chose our fathers. So preaching the gospel requires a basic knowledge of history, and you can't just jump in and dive into the first century. That is, that is a basic principle of being a good evangelist, being a good preacher, you can't just dive right into the first century. You have to connect what's happening to the flow of history that God is working in the world. He gives a summary of the Egypt, of, of the Egypt exodus events. He says, exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. So you see he's pointing to the work of God in that situation. And he summarizes their unfaithfulness in the wilderness. wilderness. Again, pointing to God's patience and mercy with his people. So the theme over and over again is he's recounting these stages that define the key stages of history is what God did, not what they did. He gives a summary of the years of conquest and settlement in Canaan. Did he say Moses conquered? Did he say Joshua conquered? That would have been historically accurate, but what did he say? When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. Who's he? God. This is God's work. And then he could have said, and, and then Moses and and Joshua worked together, and then eventually the land was divided up. No. What did he say? He distributed their land to them. Who gave them the land? God did. Who destroyed their enemies? God did. So he's got them on this, if you will, this train is moving by the time he gets to Jesus of what God has done, what God has done, what God has done, what God has done for his people over and over again. And along the way, little, little hints pointing to their unfaithfulness, and yet God is... Merciful. God is patient. God works for them. God is doing for his people what he has planned to do. Pointing to uh, this last one when they're in Canaan when he had destroyed seven nations. Specifically his work of destroying his enemies and establishing his people. So they're ready. And he comes to King David, says, or comes to uh, judges to Saul. And note the emphasis again upon God's work. God gave them judges. God gave them a king. I'm not going to read that text again. God gave them judges. God gave them a king. And then God removed Saul. So again, God's work. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king. How did David become king? God raised him up. Now, these are very sweet words that are given to us. That God said about David. So all this proclamation of God's work throughout history and kind of these sweeping summary statements kind of come to a, a, a rapid, just a sudden stop and to point at David. And he says, a man after my own heart who will do all 
my will. So God removed a bad king and he gave them a good king. Who wants a good king? Who wants a king whose heart is after God? Who wants, who wants to be a father and husband whose, whose heart is after God's heart and who will do all of his will? So this is for us to pray and cry out to God for. The, which of us, who of us wants to be this kind of person? After my own heart, God says, who will do all my will. So there's a moment there where there's that emphasis for everyone to consider as he's moving in to completing the message of the gospel. And he goes on to David's seed, Jesus, who's proclaimed by John the Baptist. Now, I I think we have to agree he's referencing the seed promise given to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says David's seed. But we know that there's the promise given to Abraham, right? So the promise was given to Adam and Eve in Eden. And the promise was given to Abraham during his sojourns about his seed. So Paul goes straight from David to Jesus. It's worth noting. I mean, just because you know all the history doesn't mean you have to give all the history. When you, surely Paul knew the rest of the history. And he could have told more examples. But he got to David, he got to the seed, and then it was time. Now what does this imply? Paul decided this was no time to remember all their disobedience. The, the temple destruction. And their crushing exile. And their losses. Rather, a time to focus upon God's Messiah and believe in Him. He wanted these people to focus on God's Messiah and to believe in Him. So he went straight to the Messiah. Jesus is of the line of David. And like God raised up David as king, God raised up for His people a Savior. The one, if we let the seed promise do its work in our thoughts... Promised to defeat Satan and to restore the joys of Eden to his people. These are glad tidings. This is destruction of all evil and all enemies by this man. So note again the emphasis upon God's work for his people. God raised up for Israel. And then we see Paul defining John the Baptist as paving the way for Jesus. Preaching the baptism of what? Of repentance to all the people. Focusing upon lifting up Christ as the only worthy one. So why did he bring up John the Baptist? He was such an important figure in the work of preparing the way for Christ. And when it came to a close, you remember his words, he must increase, I must decrease. Let's say that about ourselves, right? He must increase, we must decrease. So probably John the Baptist was known throughout the Hebrew world, not just in Judea, not just in there along the Jordan. And so bringing up John the Baptist is bringing the message closer and closer to them and their personal experiences and bringing the time to bring it right home to them. It's going from teaching and it's becoming more preaching. And here he personalizes it in verse 26. Again, men and brethren, which he said before, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. I imagine Paul's been standing this whole time. And he's been telling them a lot of things that they know. A lot of things that they know already. And you know how the thing happens when he's like, I know this, I've heard this. When is he going to get to something new? 
she gets to the seed of David, and that's Jesus. Right? And for those who didn't perk up, he's getting them now. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So there they are. They came to church that day. And to them, those sitting in that synagogue that day, the word of salvation has been sent. Now, not to say that folks who were homesick didn't get the message too, but this is for them that were there that day to hear the word of God. So having brought this epic recounting of God's work over millennia, literally, down to their present moment, Paul goes on to point directly to the hearts and minds of his hearers, making it very clear that this Jesus, the seed of David, of whom they had heard, yes, the one associated with John the Baptist, he is the Savior, the foretold Savior of Israel. And he brings to them salvation. To you. And so this message he calls the word of salvation and it has been specifically sent to the sons of Abraham and God-fears of that day. And I don't necessarily even mean just of that time period. I mean of that day, the day where the sun came up and they ended up at the synagogue on that day. Paul's saying, I'm here today to give you this message of salvation. Yes, it's broader, but he's preaching to those people. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege. When God selects out a people or a person to hear the word of salvation. Children, listen carefully. Your parents have brought you up. Joseph, your parents have brought you up hearing the word of God. Old people, you are hearing the word of God. You have a Bible. You have received the word of salvation. Cherish it. Cherish what you have received. Meditate upon it. Profit from it. Walk in His ways. And so, it is a great privilege when God does this. And here we are today. Amen? He has given us this day in His Word. So all preachers and evangelists, and, and that's not just the fellow standing here in the pulpit, but all people who bring the Word of God to others must understand this transition is necessary to complete the work of evangelism. So I ask you today, what are you doing with the Word of God as you're hearing it today? What are you doing with it? What am I doing with it? So the Word of Salvation is not just a message for others elsewhere. Paul didn't leave room for them to believe that. They had to do business with what they were hearing that day, and so do you. So this is for you sitting here today listening to this sermon, not just for academic purposes, but for your own soul to grow up in Christ. So rejoice in this privilege. Rejoice in this privilege. Whether it's worshiping God here, or whether it's worshiping God with your family, or whether it's the time you set aside in the Word on your own to worship Him, rejoice in this privilege that you have. And you, can, you don't have to hit a certain age. You, you, if, who here can read? Put your hand in the air if you can read. Caleb, you're getting there, aren't you? Yeah? Okay. So if you can read, and you have a Bible at home, Rejoice in this opportunity that's before you to learn from Him and to grow in Him. What a privilege. And the question is, will you believe in Christ more today? Resting upon Him more, looking more to Him, and receiving all the joys and the blessings of being His. <clears throat> Don't be like the Israelites. That's our contrast for the day. Don't be like, what's this nasty bread? Rejoice. 
in Jesus' salvation and in the blessings that he's given to you. And go forth. So the Jews and Romans murdered Jesus. Paul goes on. And he tells them the historical fact of what happened in that generation. Here's how he puts it. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers. And so he's like, okay, look, I know it wasn't you, right? Like, it wasn't you guys. You're Jews too, but it wasn't you. So you can see that he's wise in how he's saying it. Because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So then he does bring it kind of home to them, because they're also hearing the word every Sabbath, like you are. Like you're hearing the word every Sabbath as well, and what are you going to do with it? And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put to death. They murdered Jesus. That's what happens because of unbelief. That's the warning before us. Do you hear this, everyone? This is the warning of where unbelief goes. It's dangerous. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Historical fact after historical fact of what happened because of their unbelief. So he changes the primary source of action here. It's the only section in his historical narrative which focuses on the actions of men. Prior, it was God's work emphasized. But here we see Paul emphasize the wicked actions of the Jews and the Romans united together in unbelief. This is worth pondering. Men and women do bad things together when they are motivated by unbelief. So Paul strongly emphasizes the dangers. He says, because they did not know him nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. They heard the word of God every Sabbath, yet they rejected the very one foretold in those words. How tragic is that? Beware hearing the word of God week after week and yet not believing in Jesus. Beware, beware, beware. It's a message to all of us that we need to hear. So Paul lays out the historical reality. They condemned him. They murdered Jesus, an innocent man, to the horrors of the cross. They took him off the cross and they put him in a tomb. Preaching the gospel requires laying out these historical realities carried out by wicked unbelievers. When we share the gospel with folks, we have to include the historical reality of Christ's crucifixion. Christ was killed unjustly on the cross. It needs to be shared. We need to tell people what happened to Jesus. And now we'll see later when Paul gets to Athens, he doesn't include the history. When he's preaching straight to Greeks, he doesn't include the history of all the Jews. Right, but he does, as we read today in Acts 17, talk about God making us all one people. So he does point to history, human history. So there's always that aspect of human history. But then he gets to the one defining moment of history, whether he's coming at it from the Jews or the Gentiles' angles. And that one defining moment is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we must preach that when we bring the message. We must preach of Christ's death and resurrection. We can't just say, oh, you're a sinner, you need to repent of your sins. We have to point to Christ. We have to lay out these historical realities. And yet, even though the actions of these unbelieving rebels, these actions are emphasized in this section, they don't get the last say. Look, what does it say? What did they do? They fulfilled all that was written concerning him. Unbelievers don't make the plan. Even the nasty deeds of the rebels who murdered Jesus were all a part of God's eternal plan to deliver his people, to reveal his vast and unsearchable mercy, to lay low 
his enemies and to exalt his name above every name. And you know, doesn't it shine gloriously through when we see all of their ragings and just know that they were just doing the will of God. They were accomplishing his glorious will. Do you know that in your life when you sin, when you fail, when you break God's commandments, that in his glorious grace, he, when you repent, in your life, those things are redeemed unto his glory for you. Even if you don't repent, those things are used by him for his glory. But when you do repent, those things are used in your life to bring greater fruit, to bring multiplication. Fail forward is what Pastor Kaiser says. Fail forward. So there's this horrible thing that happened in Jerusalem. And Paul says these simple words. God raised him from the dead. The Lord God speaks life. Jesus comes back from the dead. I think if we would meditate upon the resurrection more often, we would be far less likely to say things like, we despise, we loathe this bread. What do they say? We despise this loathsome bread. We think about the resurrection from the dead, and we are grateful people. He gives them the evidence. He says he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So Paul drops this most stunning and most critical aspect of the gospel. And it's the most stunning and critical aspect, aspect to, to whomever you're talking, whether it's Jews or Gentiles. Emphasizing again God's work. And this is the greatest work of all. This is the greatest work of all. But God raised him from the dead. Now Paul doesn't open it up very much here. But seven years later, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he had a lot to say. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that is what we see in Jesus Christ being brought back from the dead. He was the first fruits, was he not? Death swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us gives us, not just Jesus, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that victory? We will live forever. When we die, we don't die. Our bodies go in the earth, but we will live forever, and we will be raised up on the final day. Death has been conquered for all of us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steady. So what's the result of this? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, but God raised him from the dead. So there they are, right there in Antioch of Pisidia, in southern Galatia, there in approximately A.D. 47, in what is now southern Turkey, hearing this fantastic message of 
resurrection from the dead. And he gives them the evidence. He references the people who'd been with them since Galilee. Likely, that's so no one can say, well, was it really him? Right? These were those who had been with him for years. Since his ministry began in Galilee, they're not going to be tricked by an imposter. And they gave verbal testimony, all these people, that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And then Paul breaks forth in gladness. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. So he's bringing it home for them now. He's assuming they're going to believe, right? He's kind of going with the momentum and he's calling them into this gladness. And it it kind of fits because these synagogue rulers probably kind of set the tone. And so they're all kind of there, ready for the, not all, but probably as a congregation are more ready to hear if the rulers are willing to hear. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. He says it again, right? Then he goes through Psalm 2, and he goes through Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16, proving to them, using the same argument that Peter used. It's just such good news to us, brothers and sisters. Now, he says we. It's worth noting. He points to his team and brings them in as witnesses as well. He says we are here. Paul's not the only happy one in the team. They're all happy to be there. Now, John Mark's not there at this point, right? He he left already. So maybe he couldn't have said that. Maybe he couldn't have pointed to his team and they were all rejoicing in the glad tidings. I don't know, but he does here. Preachers and evangelists, we should ask ourselves, are we glad in this good news that we bring to people? Are we... When's the last time that your tears showed your gladness as you prayed? Now, I'm not saying you have to, have to cry, to have joy. I'm not saying that, but you will. God gave us tear ducts for a reason. And when you meditate upon His goodness to you, like we read in Psalm 66 at the beginning of the worship, It's not just his works of the past, it's his works that he does for you. For you. You taste of his goodness. You see him working in your life and overcoming your sin. You see him working in your children's lives and giving them faith in Christ. You experience his prayers being answered. Are you a glad evangelist? Do we have happy hearts as we bring the message of joys? of joy to others. I think Paul did. Do we preach as those filled with joy bringing glad tidings? It's not an academic message. There's a lot of facts here. But he's not, he's not a seminary professor here. He's bringing life that he has tasted and he gives it to them in this message and he says it's for you too. That's what we always do when we bring the word. Jesus, foretold Messiah, the only Savior of God's people. And that's what he goes on to tell them. He says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, the title of the sermon, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you walk up to somebody and give them a four spiritual laws tract, and that's all they ever hear, then all they've heard is the title of the sermon. Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. We need to give people the historical facts of what happened when we preach the gospel to them. 
And we do need to preach the gospel to them, to their minds and to their hearts and call them to engage with the historical reality that we're presenting to them. And with joy, you can be forgiveness. You can be forgiven. You can have the forgiveness of sins through believing in Jesus. You can know the righteousness of Jesus. You can be justified. You can be God's friend. You can be free from guilt. You can be free from the power of your sin. You can know joyful relationships. You can know abundant life even starting now. You can know the joy of being brought back into communion with the God who spoke you into existence. So the whole message of salvation is brought home to his hearers. He says, therefore. Right? So he's calling them to think through everything he's just said to them. Let it be known to you, brethren. And he also says, it's preached to you. To you. So he wants each one of them to engage. Preachers and evangelists, remember, don't we? When God brought the word of salvation to their own hearts and minds. Can you remember? Can you remember when God personalized His gospel to your heart and your mind? When it became more than head knowledge and moved into saving faith that He gave to you and you could not believe what He had done for you? Children, have you experienced this? Children, have you made the faith that we are teaching to you your own through faith in Christ? Not because mommy and daddy tell you to believe it, but because God has given you faith and proven to you in your heart that it is true. Has this occurred, old people? Is this where we are? It's preached to you. And we, we preach from that recollection, that daily recollection of God giving us faith and growing us in joy. So we know that each individual, like we had to, must hear and receive and believe the Word of God in order to partake of salvation in Christ. Sitting in that pew will not save you. Okay, singing the hymns. That's not what saves you. We're all dressed up. That's not what saves you. Homeschooling, that's not what saves you. Right? Stay-at-home mom, that's not what saves you. Being a leader is a dad. And a husband, that's not what saves you, right? All these things. Lord's Supper, bread and wine, that's not what saves you. What saves you is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is where you are saved. And so I want to know, I want each of you to ask yourselves, has this moment occurred in your life where you have confessed your sins to God and trusted in Christ's death for you. He says, through this man, so everything belonging to salvation comes to us only through Christ. Through this man, Paul's preaching to his brethren, through this man, through Jesus. So when we preach, it must be about Christ. Always and only through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Bringing us near to God by his life, his death, his resurrection, his, his ascension, his intercession, his reign, his care for us. What's being preached here? The text calls it the forgiveness of sins and the justification from all sins. That's what Paul is preaching to them. Our greatest need since the fall is to be cleansed from our sins. There's nothing more precious that any human can receive than their soul being cleansed of their sins. 
This delivers us, therefore, from gloom and from doom. There's no way to be delivered from doom and persist in gloom. We, that shouldn't happen. It does, though, doesn't it? We become like the, the Jews in the wilderness. So that's one of the main things of today's sermon is don't let that happen. Press in for the joy of salvation that is yours. We are restored children of God and we are heirs of the universe in Christ. And He loves you with an everlasting love and He has a plan for your life to glorify Him. And He's going to lead you through it. He's going to care for you and your family in this church and every other church all the way through to the end. Rest in that. Rest in Him. Next, justification from all sins. I put some definitions there. This is the idea of being made righteous. Okay? So we're cleansed of our sins through Christ's work on the cross, but also through all of Christ's righteousness throughout His life, we are clothed in His righteousness. So when we stand before God, He doesn't just look at us and say, hey, look, someone free of sin. He looks at you and me through the eyes of Christ, And he says, wow, look at this righteous man. Look at this righteous woman. That's who he sees when you pray. When you come before the Father in the name of Christ, that's who he sees. That's why it's a throne of grace. That's why we come boldly. Not because of what you thought or did this morning, but because of what Jesus thought and did his whole life and still to this day. Because we are in him. Justification the forgiveness of sins. It's like going back to Eden. It's what happens. We're brought back into His loving presence and we're safe there. No judgment, no condemnation for us, His people. His smile, can we grieve Him? Of course. But He's our Father and He loves us and He will grow us. So how do you partake of these great and wondrous blessings? Well, I know of one guy who said, Lord, I praise you, I'm not like this other person and that I tithe and that I fast twice a week. Is that how we are partakers of these wondrous blessings? Is it because you keep your room clean when mommy says so? Is it because you clean up outside when mommy says so? You say yes, sir, to your daddy all the time. You know where I'm going with this. The text says, everyone who believes. And the thing I want you to hear about belief is so simple. Everyone who believes means everyone who's been granted faith by God. God saves you. We've been talking about the work of God this whole time. Now, if you just read everyone who believes, and that's all you ever read, you might think that you can generate this kind of faith from yourself, but but you cannot. But you are commanded to. Trust in Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to him whom God raised up on the cross like that serpent in the wilderness. Look to him who died for the sins of his people, who provided for us remission of sins. Look to him. Trust in him whom God raised up from the dead. He did not leave him in the tomb. Who provides for us full righteousness before our Father in heaven. Look to him to clothe you. Look to him to cleanse you. Believe in Christ. Believe these promises are yours, not just for the person sitting next to you, not just for your older siblings, not just for the brothers, not just for the sisters, not just for the husbands, not just for the wives, not just for the pastor. These promises are yours. 
the same one whom God seated at his right hand. Look to him, trust in him and his love for you, his invincible life, his infinite wisdom, his endless care over you. Trust in him who forever intercedes for us, who is there as our advocate before the Father at all times. Trust in him. And who protects us. He's our king. And he guides us. And he leads us. And he teaches us. And he provides for us. He shepherds us. Trust in him. How do we partake? Everyone who believes. That just means like what we saw that snake, that bronze serpent. You want to know what it means to believe? Go to that story. Jesus used that story to help us know what believing means. In John chapter 3, he used that story to show us what supernatural faith looks like. Look to Jesus. How were they saved in the wilderness? They looked to the serpent. How are we saved? We look to Jesus. In every aspect of need, for everything, we look to him. And there is no hope anywhere else. Paul says it this way which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. What did the Jews trust in? The law of Moses. Now, if they did so with saving faith, that was a good thing. But this transition in history is critical for these Jews to understand. The restorative system of the Sinai covenant is done. No more bleeding bulls or goats. No more suffering animals because the suffering servant has died. And he has fulfilled every single one of those lost animal lives. Every single one of that system, those animals, that blood, all of it fulfilled in Christ. This is why it's such an offense to Jesus and His Father to speak of it being a good thing to rebuild the temple and to restore the temple sacrifices, which is a part of the confused eschatological views of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is finished. He finished it on the cross. But, you know, more broadly, there's no hope anywhere else. The Jews needed to give up on the restorative system. That's what they needed to be withdrawn from. But all of us, we we can go other places as well. Look to Jesus. Where we have faith, we look to Jesus. Where we doubt, we look to other things. We help each other stop that. We help each other stop that. We help each other when we're having problems to look to Jesus. We help each other when we're suffering, when we're afflicted by biting serpents to look to Jesus. People dying all around us, we look to Jesus. Dying in sin, I don't mean like they were dying. That's what we do. And we help each other in every circumstance to look to Jesus for all that He is. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. Crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, interceding for us. Our advocate, our shepherd, ever with us by His Spirit. Ever bringing us to God. Ever blessing us in this earth as we serve Him and do His will. So we have to end with a warning. Uh, That's how Paul ends. And this is another way that the message is brought home to the heart of the hearers. 
So this is for you, not just for them, it's for me. It's for us. Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So Paul said, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. But you don't have to have it come upon you. This is going to happen, but you don't have to be amongst this group. There are going to be Jews who refuse to hear this, but you don't have to be those Jews. You see that? He's saying, this doesn't have to be true of you. And so today, did you know that that's also the case for you? There are those in this world today who will reject God to their eternal detriment. That doesn't have to be true of you. We know in scriptures that not all will be saved. We know in scriptures that there will be those who die in their sin. There have been, there are, and there will be. But that does not have to be true of you. Let it not be so of you. And may today be the difference if until now you have not believed in Christ. Do not despise the word of salvation and perish. Instead, hear the gospel. Believe and be saved. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us faith that is invincible, that grows and that always bears fruit both internally, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and also externally where we learn to love your law and live it out. Thank you, O God, that true faith from heaven separates us from your judgment and brings us into friendship with you once and for all. Thank you, O God, that true faith from heaven bears fruit. We have demonstrated justification in our lives. Thank you, O God, for the epic, glorious epic of salvation that you bring down to us through the ages and you bring us into now that we are in Jesus, the seed of David. Thank you, O God, that your work for your people began in eternity past and continues even now and shall go on forever and that we are the glad recipients of your work. We rejoice that Jesus Christ is our only Savior. And we say yes and amen that He is the only way to be cleansed and to be justified before you. And we receive this message for our own hearts and minds today, warned to not be unbelievers, but rather to come into the communion of God and to rejoice together these glad tidings that in Jesus we receive forgiveness of sins, and justification. Oh God, we praise you in Jesus' name.